I think that that has kind of given the wrong impression to observers of that cyber wars has been underwhelming or that that there is no cyber capability being used in this war when in fact um, as you as you alluded to miss Microsoft has has detailed how they have observed um, more kind of carefully coordinated or more I guess well targeted cyber attacks that are coordinated in some cases with kinetic operations so like the um, in the city of Venezia they like breached the government um, and seem to be carrying out cyber espionage just before volley of missiles destroys the airports and other buildings in the city earlier on in the war uh, there was a kind of targeting of media and TV and radio with disruptive cyber attacks on the same day that they uh, hit this TV tower and TV and radio tower in the center of Kiev with a missile killing five people in the end you know disrupting um, television broadcasts and radio so it does you know it, it seems like there has been coordination they are settling in the GRU specifically does seem to have settled into a kind of new pace of operations that I would describe uh, as sort of like quick and dirty and relentless. It's very different from the long planned kind of slow and, and slow years long sometimes preparations that result in something like not Petya. It's and it's much it's much quicker, more repetitive. Um, but it's also it seems like it's they're they're in a sense just trying to keep up with the pace of the war and the shifting dynamics there. Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Duby. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HIP podcast. Speaking of the HIP conference, registration is now open for this year's HIP global event. Join us at the Microsoft Conference Center in New York City, August 23rd and 24th, and hear from AD and identity security experts, including Microsoft Vice President of Identity Security, Alex Weinert, and former CIA Director and Semperis Strategic Advisor, General David Petraeus. You can learn more and register for HIP Global at the link in our podcast description. Today, I have a treat for you. Last year, I interviewed Andy Greenberg, senior writer for Wired Magazine, on stage at HIP New York City 2022. Andy is a prolific writer in the cybersecurity realm with both articles for Wired Magazines and his own books, such as Sandworm and his latest, Tracers in the Dark. Andy tells a great story about what might otherwise be dry facts and figures about cybersecurity and the, the main players that make these things happen from both good guys and bad guys. So enjoy. It's great to meet you in person. You're sort of like a hero journalist to me. I was, in, I was a technology journalist for a few years. I was technical director for Windows IT Pro Magazine. It was a great job. You get to investigate things. You get to talk to really smart people. Uh, and it was about the rise of internet, of identity in the internet and sort of translating that to the people. Uh, and then the 
print collapsed and I got fired <laughs> and I went into consulting. Uh, Andy, uh, that, that, at the time I was doing that, Andy was writing for Forbes, right? And I'm sure I wasn't paid well enough to be at risk of, of being fired. You know, I, it was like the actual people who knew what they were doing. Right, right. So. Well, so how did you get started in journalism then? I mean, I, I, you have a degree from uh, North Carolina University, is that correct? Uh, North Carolina School of Science and Mathematics. That was my the high school that I went to actually like it, the um, sort of like state run boarding school for like science and math that I, I went to when I was you know when I when I was sixteen, um, and then I went off uh, to do I went to college at um, a liberal arts school Haverford College where I studied a bunch of relatively useless things like philosophy and music and I did learn Mandarin there and and. Um, studied abroad in China. And so I thought that I, well, I don't know, I was just like this freewheeling um, idiot as many college students are and thought that I just could go to China and become a journalist. And maybe this would be a way to just continue to just learn and explore for you know the rest of my life. And I didn't um, really have any ambition of of being like a writer, you know, um, but I thought maybe being a reporter is just a way to use the fact that I can like put a sentence together and just have, you know, have this really interesting career um, that's all about curiosity. Um, and then I found that it was, it was um, I had no idea what I was doing uh, once again. And I, so I, I wrote for some English language magazines in, in, in Beijing. Uh, and then I decided to come back and actually like figure out journalism and, I went to NYU's business and economic reporting program um, because I, I, um, it seemed like a way to specialize and to get a job too. So I, that's how I ended up at Forbes. I actually started at Forbes like in the middle of that program and I was working at, and going to school at the same time. Uh, and the very week that I started at Forbes magazine, um, their like, security reporter left, Lisa Lair, I think she's now with the New York Times um, covering politics, but she was... She took this sort of national security approach to the job, and I was lucky enough to fill her shoes the week she came in, and they sort of let me, as a nerd, you know, take this in a completely different direction of covering hackers and cybersecurity and that kind of security and surveillance and information freedom. Although, you know, at the time, I'm sure as you know, like it seems completely insane to have that be your entire beat. This was like 2006 and 2007. Um, so it took a long time um, for, I don't know, I guess that to become such a, like a hot and in fact, very competitive kind of journalism. And I was, I was just very lucky to get in early in that way. Yeah. So as, as the field grew, as your skills and your, your context grew in the area. Yeah. I mean, it, um, today it's, you know, uh, just like talking um, to the CEO of, of Semperis outside. It's amazing to hear that the last time um, that I had saw him at the company had 30 people and now it has 350. And that is such a, like a common story. The explosion of this industry is just like an incredible wave to ride as a, as a journalist. And unfortunately, the, the catastrophic, um, disastrous cyber attacks too that, uh, that are you know, the subject of, my, of Sandworm and, and the crime waves that have come as well with, um, that are the subject of this, in some ways, this new book. Right. Well, and as, as disaster as it is for the victims, it makes for great writing. It makes for great stories, right? Right. I mean, um, 
this this book is this new book is sort of like a true crime story, which or of course you always want like you know some kind of grisly, terrible things to happen. Here, they're at least they're mostly digital. Um, Sandworm was a detective story that kind of becomes a disaster story, as as I put it, and the disaster was very real and um, you know remains. The I would say this the, the biggest disaster story in the history of cybersecurity. Well, thank, thankfully, you know that remains true a few years later. Yeah. Right. Well, so so tracers, tracers in the dark, your your brand new book. Um, so that, um, as you say, it's like a detective story. But these detective stories have got outcomes, good good outcomes. What we're hearing here, and so if you're not familiar, so. Uh, Andy has uh, a series of book excerpts that are being published on Wired on a weekly basis every Wednesday. So there have been three that have come out thus far, and, and a really big article back in April, I think it was, uh, as, as well. So, I mean, Traces in the Dark tells the story of a new breed of cyber investigators that have figured out how to expose activities on Bitcoin's blockchain. And Therefore, in the nefarious activities that that the threat actors, the, not the threat actors, but the bad guys, uh, thought could never be exposed, um, sex, drugs, and more money than they know what to do with. Uh, but one of the key points of this, and this wasn't really obvious to me, I guess I haven't been paying attention, is that the Bitcoin blockchain technology is traceable, even though the the Common thinking is that it's not traceable, but agencies like the IRS, IRS criminal investigations, and Homeland Security are taking advantage of that breakthrough to take down criminal organizations and people that you would never, ever suspect, as you say in your, in your book, that you would never, ever suspect. One of the really big breakthroughs uh, that you describe in the book is the takedown of the dark website called Welcome to Video and its administrator. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, the story of this book really is that, you know, it begins for me um, actually 11 years ago when, when I was working at Forbes and I wrote um, the, I think the first print magazine story about Bitcoin and Bitcoins were worth a dollar at the time. And I unfortunately was not interested in Bitcoin as an investment as I maybe ought to have been. I'd actually tried to buy about $40 worth of Bitcoin, but the Mt. Gox exchange was kind of buggy and I gave up, which was a you know, multi-million dollar mistake. But, um, but I was more interested as a, you know, the kind of beat that I cover, like I was interested in this notion that Bitcoin was, was purportedly, at the time at least, considered to be this untraceable anonymous currency. And I thought, this is going to unlock a whole world of criminal activity. Well, both people seeking privacy for legitimate reasons, avoiding financial surveillance, but then also money laundering and um, you know drug the drug trade, perhaps terrorist financing, murder for hire, um, and it did in fact do that exactly that. It, it monetized this whole dark web of anonymous activity and made it possible to have like the Silk Road, a, a dark web market, which appeared just months after my, you know, my piece about Bitcoin. But then this incredible thing um, happened where over the subsequent years, it turned out, and you know, maybe people in this room smarter than me knew this, that Bitcoin was anything but untraceable. It was in fact the opposite of untraceable. And first, you know, re you know kind of like uh, security researchers began to show this and then tech entrepreneurs, like people like the founders of Chainalysis. The, uh, and then law enforcement figured this out 
And a small group of detectives, who are really the, the protagonists of this book, went on an incredible spree of using this um, super weapon of, of this investigative tool of tracing cryptocurrency, uh, something that seemed impossible, to take down one unwitting cyber criminal after another, these escalating busts that just got bigger and bigger and bigger over the last decade and have continued to break records. I mean, um, uh, just this, this week, there was, uh, or was it, uh, yeah. There, the there was this uh, guy, James Strong, who, um, who had actually stolen 50,000 Bitcoins from the Silk Road. The IRS uh, criminal investigations, who are like the kind of central agency of, of the, the, the story in the book, traced him down, uh, tracked him down, traced his currency to find him, found his, you know, these 50,000 Bitcoins, stolen Bitcoins, um, hidden on a drive in a popcorn, popcorn tin under his floorboards and seized them and arrested him. And um, that is now, would have been the biggest, not only cryptocurrency seizure ever, but the biggest financial seizure of any kind, $3.36 billion at the time of the seizure. Except that it was, that record was then broken a few months later by a case many people here probably heard about, this kind of Bonnie and Clyde New York two couple who, who were accused of money laundering and laundering, in fact, this $4.5 billion trove of stolen Bitcoins from the Bitfinex exchange. Another case, by the way, um, carried out by the central characters of the book. Um, although this, that happened just as, my, as the book was you know, going to press, essentially. But you asked about the Welcome to Video case, which is not the biggest in terms of, of, of money, uh, of like dollar numbers, but I think it's probably the most important story in cryptocurrency tracing history um, and human impact. And that's, that's because it is, it's, it, Welcome to Video was the biggest child sexual abuse materials we used to call child porn um, network on the dark web um, by, you know, by counting by volume of video, it was the biggest ever. But it was also unique because this was a website, a dark website um, that was selling child sexual abuse videos uh, for cryptocurrency and um, w w seemingly totally naive to the fact that cryptocurrency could be traced. And as a result, the entire network essentially was outlined by IRS criminal investigators and chain analysis. And I, I detail, this is like one of the stories I truly like dive deep into in the book. They, they were all, um, to, not to, sorry to spoil the ending, but just to give a sense of the impact, 337 people were arrested around the world, uh, you know, uploaders and downloaders and hands-on abusers of, of children. The administrator was arrested in Korea um, of the, the creator of the site, and 23 children were rescued as a result of this. I mean, this is, um, that's a kind of impact that's, um, you know, that, that's what makes it kind of the, maybe in some sense, the climax of, this, of the book in, in terms of storytelling, but also just, you know, there's no better proof of the power of cryptocurrency tracing and the kind of incredible drama that comes from that knowledge gap between the cat and the mice in that cat and mouse game. Yeah, and actually to tie in maybe a little bit to Ben's presentation just before this, it, it, when you read about it, you see the sense of urgency of time against that because they realize that every day that they weren't able to take down and apprehend people, children could be getting abused. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. Once, you know, the, the kind of remarkable thing about that case is that it was carried out by IRS criminal investigators who have this reputation in law enforcement. Um, they're kind of, you know, one judge described them to me as like the redheaded stepchild of law enforcement. They don't get any respect from like the FBI and the DEA or whoever. And, and they certainly don't usually deal with child sexual exploitation. Um, but these IRS criminal investigators were kind of like just like thrown into the deep end of the pool because this was that very rare instance of a financial investigation with, um, you know, children's lives at stake. And they had no preparation for this. They, had, they, had no, they never had any sort of training to be exposed to these horrifying videos, um, which I, of course, was not even like legally allowed to see. But I spoke to them about this experience. And and the the pressure of that and the stakes and what they had seen, I think, you know, for all of them kind of changed them forever and changed their notion about what human beings are capable of. Right. And was this the Fresno office that started that or was that that was the uh, Alpha yeah, Bay? Yeah, that's the Alpha Bay case. Okay, so let's talk about Alpha Bay then. So um, Alpha Bay uh, was about money and about drugs. Uh, and about an administrator named Alexander Cazes. Cazes? Cazes, Cazes, yeah. Cazes, yeah. I would say he was French Canadian, so. French Canadian, Lamborghini driving French Canadian in Bangkok. So well, tell us a little bit about Alpha Bay. Yeah, well, Alpha Bay was the biggest dark web drug and crime market of all time uh, that was busted in 2017. Um, I, you know, saw this news at the time and. Um, was amazed to see that at the same time that Alpha Bay was taken down and its its administrator, its creator, Alexander Kaz, jailed in Thailand, uh, the Department of Justice also announced that the Dutch police had simultaneously taken over the second largest dark web market of all time uh, called Hansa and were running it undercover so that all of the refugees from Alpha Bay, when it was shut down, were you know flooded into Hansa and were surveilled and identified by the thousands. So this was a story that I, I knew those facts and pretty pretty much just that. And then for the last half decade, I've I've been trying to to get the full blow by blow of that investigation, which is you know which turned out to be even you know much more epic than I could have imagined. And amazingly, you know, the, the thing that really worked out about it was that just as I kind of had this, I mean, for me, it was a kind of a slow motion epiphany that cryptocurrency tracing was at the center of so many cases and that, that it was possible to trace cryptocurrency and that had been used again and again. I also learned from, first from Chainalysis, uh, truly, that, that cryptocurrency tracing had been the crucial um, kind of forensics that had confirmed the identity of the creator of Alpha Bay, this mysterious figure named Alpha O2, and shown that it was Alexander Koss, this guy in, in Bangkok. Um, you know, the, in that case, he had made a mistake uh, in, in the very first days of Alpha Bay on, online. If you registered for the user forum, in the metadata of the welcome email, there was uh, an email, his email address, pimp underscore Alex 91 at hotmail.com. So that was the first way that they learned his name. But even then, that's not enough, you know, for an indictment. And and uh, they, the prosecutors as in Fresno, as you said, this kind of unlikely place to be taking on this massive case, um, asked each other, like, what if we're, we're being set up? Like, how do we know that that 
um, that leak, which came to them through a tip that this, maybe the tipster is trying to set up this guy, framing him, you know, they needed something more solid. And it was only through some really, in this case, actually like very innovative cryptocurrency techniques that they were able to trace his money flows and show that he had cashed out one sort of um, outflow of profits from Alpha Bay after another in accounts in his own name, his wife's name, truly, I think, like sort of nailing down that evidence and proving his identity um, and leading to this like kind of epic uh, sting operation to arrest him in Bangkok, which was its own challenge because um, unlike uh, really the people in Welcome to Video, he was very, he, he did actually some very smart things about trying to obfuscate his cryptocurrency trails. Tracing his money was not simple or easy, but also he had learned from this, the case of the Silk Road, the, the first real drug, dark web drug market, that um, you have to take serious operational security measures if you're the creator of one of these sites. And he, he's, you know, he had like full disk encryption on his laptop, never opened it outside of his home, um, which was in, you know, behind like a wall in a neighborhood and on the outskirts of Bangkok. And so, you know, getting to that laptop, laptop in an open, vulnerable state turned out to be this kind of um, very dramatic um, law enforcement challenge. I don't know if I should spoil that scene. No, we won't, yeah. we won't spoil that scene, but, but the, the setup, and that was published this week in Wired, so that's as much as I know, so I can't spoil anything. Yeah, we were actually publishing, uh, well, I guess it'll, the, the book comes out next week, but then uh, we're serializing that whole story um, in Wired online, and and I don't think that even next week's um, installment includes that scene. But the you know it'll it comes. But soon the after. crux of what he's saying though is that because they had full disk encryption on, that scrambled it when you, when the PC was went to sleep. If you so much if you so much as close the lid, right? That you know, just as with um, the administrator of the Silk Road, Ross Ulbricht, he had set his laptop up the same way, but had somewhat foolishly, you know, he was working on it in the public library in San Francisco. So the FBI were able to uh, assemble this elaborate, somewhat elaborate sting where they faked a, a fight behind him and then somebody snatched the laptop from his hands. But, Al but Alexander Kaz had, was aware of that. I mean, we all were by, by 2017. So, you know, he, he was much more careful and the sting operation therefore had to be that much more elaborate. Right, right. So they had to get the they had to get the laptop away from him, with it open, or they lost it, basically. Exactly. If he just in his house suspected anything, this and, is like a movie. Plot. And closed the lid of the laptop, then they they would have been screwed. Essentially, like they would not have been able to get him kind of red-handed. Right, right. So yeah. fascinating, and we'll we will know the answers to this shortly because there are books out there. Are books out there so uh, so let's let's shift a little bit and you know you're famous in the cybersecurity industry for being the reporter that really explained the details of NotPetya and what all NotPetya was about and I'm a I'm a anyone that works with me knows I'm a student of NotPetya and I'm always looking for the minutiae of the experience because it's such a fantastic story and you can you know being able to talk about uh, you know, a lowly Nigerian system administrator with hard drives in his backpack on a Gulfstream for uh, um, uh, Maersk's Gulfstream 
flying back to Gatwick to rescue the company. I mean, that's, that's epic stuff. But um, so that's Sandworm, and this was your, your first book on Sandworm. Now, Sandworm, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, is the hacker group in Russia's military intelligence unit, the GRU. And so NotPetya happened a little more than five years ago. It was five years ago in May or June? June, June. Yeah, June 27th. June 27th. I actually have that in my calendar, you know. Um, it's also the day that the die, whichever diehard was about cyber war, also June 27th, really? exactly 10 years earlier as the day that it premiered, which blows my mind. I mean, I, I almost wonder if that was intentional. Um, but anyway, I, I digress. That's no, that's a, that's a great little factlet. Um, so, so all of that happened, and now we have the war in Ukraine. And everybody expected another NotPetya to come out. Uh, they expected essentially all hell to break loose. And that's not happened, or it doesn't seem to have happened. Now, some analysts have proposed that not a lot happened because coordinating cyber and conventional military is very difficult to do. And we've seen that the Russians have a hard time just coordinating conventional military. Um, but Mystic, Microsoft's Threat Intelligence Center, says that they have, in fact, worked diligently to repel attacks. And I'm just wondering, with your background in this and your observation in this, what's your, what do you think is going on? Or what do you think is the, why is, why is it the way it is today? Yeah, it's been really interesting to, I mean, horrifying, of course, like it's, it's almost, it feels weird to even be talking about cyber stuff when um, civilians are being massacred and their children are being deported from the country. And um, I mean, the brutality of Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, like kind of makes, I don't know, the, the on the list of um, grievances, like anything cyber is quite far down that list. But but, it, but you know, for us, for all of us who who study these things, as you said, um, you know, it's just been interesting to see a, a new kind of cyber war here because in from 2014 to 20, to early the February of 2022, um, that was a different kind of war. I mean, Russia had um, invaded the east of Ukraine. I mean, I think people forget that sometimes, but well, they were fighting a sort of limited war in the east. They'd seized Crimea, but but largely, um, cyber war was being used kind of at Russia's leisure to reach like far beyond those conflict zones and inflict, you know, as much terror as you could even call it cyber terrorism if you instead of cyber war um, on the capital of Kiev or the west of the country where they um, inflicted a blackout in 2015. Um, but then in, in February of uh, we saw the beginning of this new phase where there's now a totally unlimited, um, unrestricted, full-scale invasion. And now you have to ask, like, what is the role of cyber warfare in the midst of a full-blown physical war? And um, it really hasn't been clear, I think, um, even to Russia itself, I think, what's they, what the GRU was meant to be doing. And, and you can kind of, see, I thought, kind of thought, um, real, I mean, everybody is still figuring this out, but I think it's, it did seem like they were kind of flailing at the beginning of the war, um, launching like limited wiper attacks. They did, you know, launch a wiper attack on the eve of invasion, probably to create a kind of um, just a, a feeling of of disorder, of chaos that um, would throw off any military preparations. Um, but these, but 
nothing remotely as well executed as NotPetya, as you said. But then I think that that has kind of given um, the wrong impression to observers of this, that that there is, that cyber wars has been underwhelming or that, that there is no cyber capability, you know, um, being used in this war. When in fact, um, as you, as you alluded to, Ms. Microsoft has, has detailed how they have observed, um, more kind of carefully coordinated, um, or, or more, I guess, well targeted, um, cyber attacks that are, uh, coordinated in some cases with kinetic operations. So like the, um, in the city of Venezia, they, uh, they like breached the government um, and seemed to be carrying out cyber espionage just before uh, a volley of missiles destroys the airports and other buildings in the city. Um, the, and earlier on in the war, uh, there was a kind of targeting of media and TV and radio with disruptive cyber attacks on the same day that they uh, hit this TV tower and TV and radio tower in the center of Kiev with a missile killing five people in the end you know, disrupting um, television broadcasts and radio. So it does, you know, it, it seems like there has been coordination. There's actually, I can't talk about all this yet, but there's, um, there's a story we're publishing tomorrow based on new research <clears throat> that shows that I think that they are settling in, the GRU specifically does seem to have settled into a kind of new pace of operations that I would describe uh, as sort of like quick and dirty and relentless it's very different from the the long planned uh, kind of slow and and slow um, years long sometimes preparations that result in something like NotPetya. It's and it's much it's much quicker. It's um, more repetitive, um, but it's also it seems like it's they're they're in a sense just trying to keep up with the pace of the war and the shifting dynamics there. And you believe that they're still going to continue to be focused on Ukraine and Ukraine infrastructure? It seems like they, like Russia has its hands full with Ukraine and will for a while. You know, I, I, um, it, it actually like seems, you know, with, with, uh, with in the story of Sandworm, uh, it, the, the threat was always, will they use the things that they're experimenting with in Ukraine around somewhere else in the world? Eventually, that that nightmare comes to pass very liter you know, very directly with NotPetya, perhaps by accident, perhaps um, purposefully. You know, people still debate whether NotPetya's spread beyond Ukraine's borders was what caused that, and caused that ten billion dollars in damage um, globally or more. Um, but then also very intentionally against the Pyeongchang Olympic Games, where they used the Olympic destroyer to carry out a destructive cyber attack during the opening ceremonies of the games. I mean, that's something people forget. I think that that's not, that was certainly intentional and very just like, you know, um, kind of typical aggrieved um, servants of this dictator who was, who, whose ego was bruised by doping allegations, you know, so, um, but it now seems like, like, I don't know, I haven't, uh, it, it does seem like the GRU, this military intelligence agency, Russia's focus in general is just, you know, um, all on Ukraine because it is, it's become almost an existential conflict for, for the Kremlin too, uh, at which, you know, it is, 
doesn't make things better for Ukraine, but I think does change the calculus for the rest of the world. The ways uh, a lot of people early on um, predicted that by sanctioning Russia and boxing it in, putting it into a corner, global, you know, in terms of geopolitics, that the Kremlin would lash out and release another NotPetya in retaliation in that way. And, and we have not really seen that, um, certainly not on like a, a scale that threatens the global order or stability in the same way that a NotPetya would. Uh, certainly, I know one theory of why uh, you, Ukraine has not qu quite seen the scale that people expected was because, A, the Russians expected this to be a very short war, uh, and B, they wanted to use the, their communications infrastructure, so they didn't want to destroy it. Absolutely. Also, you know, just it, in the, when you are um, planning a physical war, you're, you're not, um, it's why bother with the incredibly elaborate, like, Rube Goldberg machine of, um, of a cyber attack to, to turn off the power when you can just send a missile to do the same thing. And like, uh, and, and, you know, so I think it's just a very, and so in, in fact, if anything, they, they probably want to preserve access for cyber espionage in support of like those kinetic operations that are so much more effective and, and damaging and, and tragic in many cases. So one of the themes of Sandworm is how governments responded or didn't respond to the Russian government's, uh, Russian military attacks. Um, but that has changed since the book came out. Yeah, I mean, this is like one kind of glimmer of, um, of good news, uh, as you're saying. Like, I, um, I was as shocked as, by this as anyone that in, after the book came out, I mean, the book sort of ends with me just postulating this theory that I had, of course, did not come up with myself, but, it, but had heard from... Um, that was told to me by the central characters of the book, and in particular, um, FireEye, which is not Mandians. They had they had this theory, um, along with uh, some other folks, that that Sandworm, this mysterious hacker group that was doing such terrible, aggressive things around the world, was Unit Seven Four Four Five Five of the GRU. But then, in um, that was just a theory, and when I published it in the book, and then in 2020, the U.S. State Department. Uh, released this statement that um, that Sandworm in particular, not just Russia or the GRU, but Sandworm had uh, attacked the uh, a series of TV broadcasters and media companies in the nation of Georgia the previous year, and that this was unacceptable and, you know, that it w we condemned this, you know, this act of unprovoked aggression. And it was, and, and it named Sandworm as Unit 7445 of the GRU in this official release. So, um, you know, they actually just, I don't want to, I don't think that I get credit for having like, um, criticized them or bullied them to the point where they, you know, changed their tune and started holding Sandworm accountable. But this was like a huge sea change. And they, and somebody did, uh, from the white house, uh, I should say, um, I got, a, I got a phone call before this announcement that I think was sort of meant like, Okay, fine. Look, like we're we're doing, we we listened and um and you can't you can't um criticize us for this anymore. We are doing something. And Georgia is not a NATO country. I mean, this was a, a real shift from the attitude of both, I think, the Obama and Trump administrations that cyber attacks on Ukraine are Ukraine's problem because Ukraine is Russia's sphere of influence. It's not NATO 
it's not the EU, you know, it's, um, and that was a really, I think, damaging and dangerous policy. And I think it's completely changed. I mean, in, in the run up to the invasion, we also saw a series of distributed denial of service attacks, which are, you know, very crude by the standard of Russian attacks on Ukraine um, against Ukrainian websites. And within not, I mean, not the months or years that, you know, it took um, to call out Sandworm, but in, within hours, the White House was calling that a GRU attack and saying that it was unacceptable, which is, you know, I mean, it's just night and day. And I, I, I wholly, you know, appreciate it. It's not the, um, the digital Geneva Convention that would, that I still think um, would be nice, but it's, it's a, a huge step. Good, a good step forward. So if, if anyone in the audience has any questions they'd like to pose to Andy and any from any burning questions up, oh, Gil's got a question. Does we have another mic here by any chance, anyone? You can't talk yet, Gil. Uh, yeah, good. So um, the, you called this sort of a true crime story, and it really sounds like that, like some film noir kind of book uh, that you might have read from the 50s, you know, in L.A. crime. Yeah. yeah, L.A. crime or New York crime uh, families. I had two questions in that area. One is, do you see uh, more parallels between sort of the traditional gangster crime and what we're seeing in the cyber world today? And... Do you see, is it plausible to consider a uh, uh, Blade Runner style movie um, along those lines? Well, I do think that, you know, the, um, even the worst of the, of the kind of, uh, if you could call them villains or antagonists or whatever in the book, um, you know, it's always, uh, they're, they're, they're not um, actual Scarface, you know, gangsters. Um, in this country or, you know, in, in most of these situations there, um, they are like malevolent nerds who just thought they could get away with it, you know, and um, even Alexander Kaz, who also, by the way, had this other alter ego as a, um, an extremely prolific womanizer um, in Bangkok. And his, you know, there's a part of the story that's kind of, you know, for better or worse about his sex life, which is um, very gross. Um, he under you know underneath his like expensive suits and Lamborghini and everything was a kind of um, pudgy pale nerd and you know I I, um, I, I feel uh, he he did uh, he was found dead in a Thai jail cell in the end of this story I should say and um, I feel you know bad like criticizing someone who. Um, speaking ill of the dead, essentially, but nobody, I, 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 I won't get into like whether he was murdered or committed suicide, which is what law enforcement says. Um, but I don't think that he was prepared for, you know, he, he, he was not prepared for life in prison. He was not a tough guy. He was someone who, who was seduced as so many of these people were by this, this, um, illusion of impunity, of untraceable currency and un, untraceable um, dark web and anonymity technologies, when in fact, you know, there was a fatal flaw there. Now, on the, on the, the movie, we are, 
I mean, we've announced this. We're, I, I've sold the rights to the book already, and but it's I don't know about a Blade Runner style movie. That would be fun. It's much. I mean, I think we're thinking more like um, The Wire, um, but uh, with uh, with I guess cryptocurrency tracing instead of like actual wiretapping has the central tech, you know, surveillance technology that drives it. Yeah. Yeah. So, but he, so Andy mentions chain analysis and reactor in there. And so that is the actual, that's the company and the software that is used to crack the, the blockchain on there. Right. Well, they certainly are, I would say like are the, um, they were the first to really make a build a startup around this to automate it to make it this polished like application that anybody can use to trace cryptocurrency and to start working with law enforcement. Um, but I, you know, I, I wouldn't credit them with inventing some all of those tricks. They they certainly like they're now an eight point six billion dollar startup just down the street from here, and um, they have the money now. I think to recruit the smartest minds. Um, coming up with every possible way to, you know, to, to trace like just any loose thread on the blockchain. Um, but but the, another central character of the book is, is Sarah Micklejohn, a researcher at the University of California, San Diego, who was truly the first to figure out a lot of this stuff. And has, you know, I think I, I found her like to be a fascinating character because she um, does not kind of join that for-profit crypto tracing world. Uh, and in fact, is very ambivalent about it and sees a real need for financial privacy, for protections from all pervasive financial surveillance. And so I, I didn't, you know, this is a fun, it's fun to tell cops and robbers stories, but, but I didn't intend this book just to be that. Like, I do think that there's a really um, interesting other side to this story about the ways that Bitcoin promised privacy to people and then turned out to be uh, a trap for them instead. Right. Because once it's on the blockchain, it's always there and you can come back a hundred years later. And Exactly. And th that is happening like this week. I mean, uh, with poor James Jong, who stole these Silk Road Bitcoins in 2012, 10 years ago. And, you know, and the blockchain leads law enforcement right to the popcorn can in his floorboards, under his floorboards. <laughs> Sorry, please. Yeah, I always have questions. Sorry. Uh, I missed your session, unfortunately, but since you're talking about crypto and I'm sort of interested in crypto, uh, I do mine on my side. I've been doing it for quite some years. Um, we're talking about intelligent people, right? Using crypto. And I was just wondering why on earth would you use Bitcoin? Out of all the cryptocurrencies that you have today, why not use XMR or use something that is clearly less traceable than Bitcoin? We are talking yeah. about educated people, smart people. With right, right. We're not talking about a hundred grand. We're talking about millions or billions. So why why make Absolutely. that stupid mistake behind that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, this the, this book, the story of this book begins, as I said, in 2011, when you know. It was early, yeah. When um, even Satoshi Nakamoto in the original email introducing Bitcoin, um, the Bitcoin white paper to a cryptography mailing list has this, you know, these bullet points of the features of Bitcoin. And one of them is participants can be anonymous. And then, you know, uh, the Silk Road then picks up this, and this idea and stays online for two and a half years. 
Uh, and it really did seem, I think we all forget this, that like Bitcoin did seem like a privacy technology at the time back then. So then, yeah, the, the, but then, you know, of course, this cat and mouse game just um, unfolds from there. And yeah, it's um, so Alexander Kaz, the, the, the administrator, the creator of Alphabay, did use mixers and did Tornado I cash? Um, what's that? Tornado cash? Not, not that one. I, I, I don't know. They actually wouldn't tell me. But they, but I, I think that was would have been too early. The, um, and I, I think he also probably put money into Monero and then and back into Bitcoin. And he actually had Zcash on his laptop. That was when it was. I don't want to spoil, but what it was, of course, seized. And then, um, so yeah. I mean, people are becoming aware of this. I do think though that like this cat and mouse game continues. And um, Monero people hate hate me like saying this, but. Um, I, I don't believe that Monero is like a foolproof privacy tool either. And um, in fact, like in that truly the, the still the biggest financial seizure, the Bitfinex hack and money laundering case, I did a, you know, I looked at the, I wrote a story just sort of analyzing the IRS's public documents about that. And in this chart, I, you know, you can see that one, one part of the money flows, one part of the money flows that, the, it seems to be um, those billions of dollars worth of bitcoins are ex part of them are exchanged for Monero, and yet the IRS continues to follow the money in a way that they don't explain, and um, and so it does seem that they have some Monero, perhaps not certainty but probabilistic um, tracing, and then also I mean I don't know how, how much people. Um, who are not as obsessive about this as me, like saw this, but there was a, a leak of Italian law enforcement documents that included a presentation from Chainalysis who had to have also worked on the Bitfinex case in which, this is in Italian, but there's a page of that presentation in which they tell the Italian police that they can trace Monero in a majority of cases. So, um, and, and just to get a usable lead, but that is often enough. I mean, I think that people, Criminals often think that like, if you can't prove I did it, then um, you can't prove that the money is mine, then you can't do the tracing. But, but it is often enough for a subpoena. Like the, the, the bar to just subpoenaing a ton of cryptocurrency exchange accounts is lower than they think, you know? So, um, sorry, that's a long answer. But <laughs> just to say that like, um, I think people are, are making in, in some ways the same mistakes that I made, that everybody made in 2011, thinking Bitcoin was untraceable. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that uh, many cryptocurrencies are truly untraceable. Although, you know, perhaps eCash is. I don't want to get into that, but it's um, that that is a whole new can of worms, I think. And um, and you know, I, I think only the fact that Zcash has not gotten a ton of adoption has um, prevented us from seeing whatever you know, enormous implications that will have for society. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.